we are not our titles and we are not our majors and we are not the labels that people give us. And I think sometimes we get stuck because we're like, you know what? I can't contribute to this really wicked problem space because I don't have that expertise. And that's just not true. While 40% of food in America goes to waste, 35 million Americans are food insecure, meaning they are without food or sure where future meals will come from. We are so excited to talk today with Emily Ma, head of food for good at Google, who is reimagining how our food systems work with the goal of creating a sustainable, equitable, and healthy future for all. Emily, thank you so much for being here. It's an absolute pleasure, Liz. So you have a job that did not exist 25 years ago. So the question I must ask is, how did you get started in technology? And you can start as young as you would like, but I'd love to know the defining moments um, that brought you to this amazing position you have now. I'm going to start by sharing a little bit of what my father said uh, at um, my wedding. So uh, I just finally had a wedding. It was postponed twice uh, because of the pandemic, and I finally had it uh, two weeks ago. And Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I know. Well, we were, we've been married uh Zoom wedding, but uh you know, actually having a in-person wedding that didn't happen for a while, so, you know, pandemic. Oh my gosh, Emily. But here's what my father said. Um What did your father say? It was so funny. It was so funny. He's he's like, "Yeah. Yeah, we had a lot of signs that, you know, she would want to, you know, be an engineer at some point because we heard this huge crash. We were like, "What happened?" And somehow the baby version of me had figured out how to use leverage to tear down the drapes in the living room. And so he's like, yeah, ever since that point in time, I think she kind of figured out like, you know, some mechanics and how to be a force multiplier and all that. You know, I, I guess at the end of the day, I, I've always, like you, you know, been really curious about the physics of the natural world, I guess, right? Since I guess pulling down curtains at the age of, you know, one and a half years old. And that led me to uh, being really curious about architecture, really being curious about how things are built, uh, whether you know it was a house or even product design, like how do I make this you know computer mouse I have my hand? And by the time I was a teenager, that it was actually I went to an all-girls school and no one went into engineering. I was you know one of the very few folks who even sort of considered what it was. And um, part of it was I had a really great you know math teacher who's like, oh, you should check out this like summer camp for kids who like tech in Canada. That's called Shad Valley. You get to go and spend a month at a university and just be exposed to all different kinds of engineering and science. And so I was like, oh, an engineer. An engineer is not like a train engineer that stands and like, you know, toots the horn and like lets people on and off the train. And, oh, an engineer is actually a lot more, right? There's a lot more than that. And um, that was really my sort of first sort of big moment where I was like, oh, there's there's a, a future. There's actually a life and there's a career that's possible here. Wow. Did you find more women at Stanford who were interested in engineering or did you feel? Oh, great question. Great continued question. to feel isolated. I'm curious. You know, it depended on the major. I think electrical engineering was particularly hard. So I was like one of two women um, in uh, some of the early sort of introductory courses in electrical engineering. I took the first one, so lots of women in that one. And then the next three, I think there are fewer and fewer. Um, you know, 
The truth of the matter is, it, I, I didn't necessarily choose mechanical engineering because I was like, oh, you know, there's people I want to hang out here. I ended up at a lab, uh, Mark Kukowski's lab uh, at Stanford, and um, he ran um, actually two parts of his lab. One was dexterous manipulation, super interesting. How can you get robots to like learn to pick things up and put them down? And it's not just, you know, like not just like a hard object, like a pen that you can squeeze really hard, but like, how do you pick up an egg with a robot? Because if you squeeze too hard, it's gonna drop and that'd be not good. Um, and then the other side was biomedics, um, biomedic robotics. And um, that's, I think, where you and you probably remember me building a robot to climb up a hill. Um, and just, again, that was tying back to the natural world. And I studied cockroaches. I know that sounds really weird and like very awkward, but like uh, insects, we have so much to learn from insects about how they navigate their unstructured environments. So I, I literally had two pet cockroaches that I would feed dog food to and I would watch them like run around and that would be inspiration for how we build robots. Just amazing, amazing learning. Um, but you know, in that space, you know, there were a few other women who were in that lab and then in the adjacent labs. And then I could see myself be them. So they were all in their PhD programs. I was still an undergrad. Um, I was a junior at that time. And, you know, um, I was like, well, I really like these people and I feel like I have a community uh, here. So I'm going to study mechanical engineering uh, as, as a result of that. That's really interesting. And then the lab culture. Now, I, I must go down this rabbit hole. When I met you, I thought for sure you were destined to be a PhD student. You were so focused. And so your, as I under, as I recall, your first job out of college was as a design consultant at IDEO. That's right. That's right. So, you know, Mark, uh, Professor Kukowski uh, is a wonderful, wonderful mentor and just incredibly wise. And he himself had gone into industry before he went back and did his PhD at Carnegie Mellon. So he went and spent a number of years at Alcoa, um, and Alcoa is, I think, an aluminum manufacturing company, refining company. Correct. Yeah. Um, and uh, he used to often say how important that experience was. And so he literally at one point said, you know, I'll always be here. This level, he still is there, by the way. Yeah, he uh, is doing you know, very well. Uh, <laughs> right. And so um, he says, go out and at least do an internship. Like go out and uh, like explore what it's like to be you know, at a company, you know, doing something different. Like the doors will always be open here. And so um, I ended up interning at IDEO for a summer. And um, that was a summer right after, um, there were some hard times. There was a recession uh, in the early 2000s as well. And uh, I think they had uh, not hired for a little while and suddenly were like, oh, we need to bring in some new talent, some young people. And so I was part of the intern class where many of us just went from our internship and went full time. And so we're like, oh, we like it here. They're like, do you want to stay? And we're like, oh, great. Okay, we can stay. <laughs> okay. And then, but then you didn't, you did stay and then you went on to... Google. So you didn't go back to a PhD. So what then got you to Google where your career, you worked on everything. It's um, briefly, you worked on, I mean, not briefly, I'll summarize briefly what you did. You worked on Glass, you worked on Loom, Waymo, and now you're onto food. So you have worked on such, in my mind, from the outsider eye, such a spectrum of projects, but I'd love to hear the path of, of how those all came together. And they must yeah, make sure. sense for you. There's got to be a line <laughs> through there for you. Oh, my goodness. You know, um, firstly, just taking a moment to honor IDEO and my experience in design consulting. It was 
such a great four years of my life right out of college because I wasn't going into one industry doing one job. It was even though in those four years, I had this beautiful opportunity to work in um, like medical devices to computer electronics, to furniture, to, you know, other sort of fast moving consumer goods efforts. And so I got to see so much in those four years across, I think it was probably eight different projects and many more just I was exposed to. And so early in my career, and in hindsight, I realize now how important that was, because that actually helped me sort of hone in on um, not just like the skill sets I really like to sort of build on, but also what I didn't like. And then same thing, like what verticals do I like and what sort of verticals, verticals meaning like industries did I like and what did I not like? And so, um, you know, I, that's something that I share a lot with folks who are you know, coming out of, you know, college, like, Hey, you know, how do I decide between two jobs? And it's like, well, which one's going to give you the maximum exposure, right? Because we can't really decide in our twenties exactly who we're going to be. Actually, we can't really decide even now. I mean, I have a better sense now, but like, you know, it's this evolution uh, over time. So Emily, in the spirit of sharing parental stories, my mother said in your twenties, your job is to figure out as much of what you like and as much as it is to figure out what you don't like. That's right. In fact, she That's articulated right. as you're, hopefully you will not like your first couple of jobs because that will direct <laughs> you to where, what you do like. That's right. I thought That's that right. was fascinating. That is well said. That is well said. Very, very well said. <laughs> you had a more um, positive spin of you want to observe many different things. <laughs> you know, building on that theme, actually, um, uh, of observing many different things, I, what happened was I ended up um, doing uh, more um, project leading by the time I was in my third and fourth year at IDEO. And um, I was realizing that I could do the engineering, I could do the design work, I could do the creative work, uh, but um, to see things actually go out in the world, uh, making a business case was really important. And so, of course it would. Like, you know, we would design, um, you know, I have a number of things that, you know, are out in the world still. Like, I go to Stanford and actually there's a piece of furniture that I was part of designing that is like everywhere now. And I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that. And I remember that piece, I remember that piece. Okay, can you tell us what it is? It must yeah. know. Yeah, Which yeah. one is um, it? Uh, so it's a steel case product. Steel case yes. is a really big firm company, um, and uh, it's it's called the Acura table. It's this really fun table that um, when you flip it up, the legs actually turn, and so you could stack like. Oh, I know exactly what it is. Those are brilliant. Yeah, I didn't yeah, know you were so behind them. That's right. I was uh, <laughs> I was one of three or four engineers on that um, for about a year. Oh, wonderful. And, uh, yeah. So yes, obviously, you know, it would take a year and a few engineers to kind of design, like do the research and design it well. But then like Steelcase had to put a lot of money in to like actually buy the raw materials, set up the manufacturing line, do the marketing work, figure out how their salespeople would go and sell it. And without a really clear business case, like we would work really hard on things, but they would never like actually end up you know, being realized in the world. And so as a result of that personal realization, I ended up deciding to go back to business school because I'm like, I don't know if I ever want to be a business person, but I really want to observe and learn how business people operate and like how, how do investors think about the world and how do they come up with their own sort of um, perspectives and proposals. Um, and I went to business school mainly uh, to, uh, how do I say it? I, I went in there as with sort of an anthropologist and like like an anthropologist, I was like, oh, this is really curious. I don't know anything about these people. Like, want to make friends? Want to kind of observe? Like, want to kind of see how they 
you know, socialize, right? So it's fascinating. I knew I was never going to be an investment banker. You know, let me fast forward a little bit. I um, ended up um, continuing to sort of ask myself, where are the things that I want to learn and where are the gaps? Like, and sometimes, you know, identifying those gaps, you don't know that there's gaps until you kind of sort of walk the walk and realize, oh, this is a domain area that I'm really curious about, but I know nothing about. And um, coming out of business school, uh, I've, um, you know, at a place like Idea, we would always take sort of the step one and two and then, um, you know, make like 100 prototypes to sort of test things out. And I was inherently very curious about how, like, you know, one million iPads get made every day type thing, right? Like different scale, right? You know, you're making 100 or something. You can go in the machine shop and machine, you know, 100, you know, prototypes, right? Uh, by hand if you needed to, right? You're going to make like a million or something per day, like totally different system to do that, right? And so I put myself in China for that very reason. I, I wanted to be in the middle of it. I, I, went, I spent about a year. Actually, I spent some time in China with IDEO, but I wanted to be on the opposite end. So I went and I spent a year with a company called PCH. They do a lot of work for Apple. And I saw like, it's like every night, it's like, wow, that's a lot of, you know, Dr. Dre beats headphones leaving the factory floor, like containers filled, right? Like, like many containers filled. And, you know, it was, for me, it was such great exposure to um, that part of the supply chain, that part of the product process. And um, ultimately, um, you know, I, at the end of the day, I thought, um, you know, China would be a great place for me, but I actually, I had just vulnerably, I had some health issues, um, with air quality and things like that. And so, um, I ended up coming back here and, um, again, you know, another theme that I'd love to share is, you know, people may come and go in your life, but if we just hold them in high regard, always things always come around. So, a number of folks knew I was looking for a way back into California and back to the U.S. And I had friends at Google. I had friends at a place called Google X. Um, again, it's um, at the end of the day, um, you know, the funny thing about, you know, just finding like opportunities in our careers oftentimes is less so us like having exactly a particular expertise or, you know, meeting certain requirements. It's about like whether or not you can jam with the people, right? And you know, companies are cultures. And, you know, it, it's it's really important, even if the opportunity is amazing, to find people you can jam with. And, you know, like when I go back to Mark's lab, like, oh, my God, like we would, I don't know if you remember this, like every October we would take a week off and Mark would too, and we would make costumes. I, I do and recall that. There was a year where everybody dressed up as life-size Duff beer cans. So Duff beer is like the Homer Simpson brand of beer. There was another year where we all dressed up as Pac-Man characters. So I was as a ghost, but I was this giant purple ghost and I would run around campus and I was chased by someone else from the lab in a Pac-Man costume. Oh my God. Like that stuff matters, right? So, um, uh, I knew I wanted to work at a place where people would uh, not only work hard and be have a sort of curiosity, but also would just have fun. Uh, okay, Emily, I have to ask you, because you were talking about business cases earlier. Tell What is the business case for taking a week off to dress up in costumes? I believe there is one. I would love to hear your take on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's a fun question. Um, okay, I'm, I'm going to go a little bit philosophical. Um, at the end of the day... Um, I think it was Stephen Covey who said it, like collaboration happens at the speed of trust. 
And, uh, you know, especially now I work at a very, Google's massive. When I started, it was like 30,000 people. And now it's like 170,000 people. And we're in 170 cities in the world. And so um, when I say um, collaboration happens at the speed of trust, business happens at the speed of collaboration. And so almost 10 years in now at Google, I know who to pick up the phone to call and ask a question to or ask for help. And generally, because we've had a good you know, relationship in the past and we've had good experiences with each other, I get an answer or I get help. And so it's easy for me now. So I can get things done really fast. Taking time off for a week to make costumes. And I guess in some ways, my team sort of does that. I'll explain what we do. Sometimes we, we just have to do things that seem like they have no productive reason to do so because we learn about each other um, in new ways. You see people or you see yourself and you see other people sort of in these moments where we're like struggling to solve something. And it's all, it's like low stakes because it's, well, depending on how you put it, it's kind of low stakes because you're not trying to like push out a research paper or you're not trying to like, you know, deliver on a really important business goal. Right. But you learn about each other and you kind of figure out, oh, this is what happens when so-and-so gets stressed out or like when so-and-so is like frustrated and then you kind of work through it. And then that lesson is really valuable for when the stakes are higher, when like, oh my goodness, we're in a code yellow because, you know, there's something in our product that's not working and we have to drop everything and really focus on this one bug that we need to solve for. Or, oh goodness, you know what? We really need to hit this deadline and we just don't have enough resources. How do we problem solve? So while it might seem totally ridiculous to have like 10 people in a lab stop working for a week and just like make costumes, um, it actually speeds up the day-to-day, the normal day-to-day a lot. I love it. Okay, now I must know. What do you do with your, what do you do with your team? I'm dying to know. <laughs> um, so uh, in, a, in a sort of a more formal way, we do a lot of field trips. So regardless of who is on our team, um, if you're an engineer, if you're a policy person, if you're a marketer, we go out in the world a lot and we just go into, like we visit farms or we, um, you know, go and visit food banks or we go to, um, we, we, we go or <laughs> the most recent field trip I did, I was, I was up at four in the morning in um, a Safeway store. Um, when they're restocking? Watching them. The oh, they were dealing with What's the trash. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And restocking and meeting all the people sort of on the receiving dock. And that's when everything happens at a grocery store. And so um, I will, I will share one more very specific instance. So you're, you're like, why are we doing this? Um, so here's another sort of, this is my favorite example. So um, we work in waste. I know it's not the sexiest thing. I know many of you are kind of like, why the heck after so many years of education, uh, which he spent time doing this. Uh, next Monday, I'm going to spend my afternoon with a lot of colleagues sorting through trash. We're going to go literally into a dumpster and we're going to pull everything out of it and we're going to sort it. And yeah, <laughs> it's not back. But if that is what we're trying to learn about and make a difference with and reduce and like redirect like yeah and by the way um google's a really neat organization we systematically go through every city we're in every building we have and we will manually sort through our trash and audit it and make sure that we have a good understanding of what's being wasted and so um yeah sorting trash doesn't seem like it has a lot of value but well you learn a lot (laughs) what do you do with that information that's a great question so um, you know, 
I, I didn't even know this was a field like 20 years ago, but in the last 10 years or so, I think this concept of a circular economy, this concept of circularity has become much more front and center. And I guess 20 years ago, I was very interested in um, William McDonough, who wrote a book called Cradle to Gradle. Uh, so, you know, he was kind of avant-garde, right? And I was like, oh, how do I get myself into this space? Um, and now it's like really all the rage because waste and materiality is directly um, tied to uh, just global recognition that carbon emissions need to be reduced if not brought to zero. And similarly, water is a very precious resource on Earth. Water is also a big part of waste. And so um, understanding materiality, understanding circularity, those have become um, so, so critical um, in everyday business. And, and, and Google has stepped up, as have a lot of our peer tech companies around setting really, like, really audacious carbon goals. Uh, you know, so we're looking to be carbon free by 2030 across you know, all uh, scopes. So scope one, two, and three, so our immediate, put everything up our supply chain. Um, and then we're looking to return um, you know, 20% fresh water to all the communities we're in um, beyond what we use. So like literally if we use, you know, one gallon of water, we need to return 1.2 gallons of fresh water into the community. And so um, we cannot ignore waste because waste is carbon and water, basically. <laughs> and food waste in particular is all carbon and water. And so uh, that's how I ended up um, doing the work I do. And I got very lucky in that the timing became the timing and the stars aligned for me to, to really do the work I do today. Could achieve the same goal. Awesome. Um, I need to ask, um, going back a little, yes. I love this. You've, the, from my perspective, you've really gone from a focus on screens and, and hardware, correct me if I'm wrong, to data and information. Is that a trend you're seeing in the industry or is that a individual, your individual development and progression or both? Oh, that's so interesting. So interesting. That's such, I, that's such a great question because um, I actually got interviewed by Google when I was in my sophomore year. I think um, someone called me and was like, Hey, we got this startup. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not a software engineer. Like I only, I took like one software engineering class or computer science class. Like I'm probably not right for you. Um, and so it's funny because like literally 20 years later, I'm like, Oh, I, I run a software engineering team with data scientists and right, software engineers. Right. Um, <laughs> and we're once so, building robots. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right, right. And pulling so, down curtains. Uh, it is. A, I must remember the curtain pulling. Yeah. It's, <laughs> That's right. It's, it's, it's this weird sort of like loop. Um, so, um, you know, I think I went from hardware because it's so fascinating. It actually goes back to a decision I made. I was like, am I going to major in electrical engineering or computer science or um, mechanical engineering? And I chose mechanical engineering because I could see, I could see things, right? I could see the injection mold that makes, you know, the part, right? You know, I can see the part and, having really good like product design discipline and having a really good sort of thorough like problem solving process um, and a design process is applicable whether or not we're doing hardware or environments or software or solving systems issues. I think the process by which we go um, to solve any sort of problem, big or small, simple or complex, 
the steps are very similar, right? There might be obviously some differences in the complexity levels, but like I still sort of look at the world, you know, and, and Liz, you and I um, are proponents of human-centered design. And I think we're, we still take a very human-centered approach. Like there's a reason why I'm like in the trash with the garbage man, or literally, right? Or like in the field with the farmer or, you know, in the, you know, like on the receiving dock with like the Safeway folks at four in the morning, right? There's that, you know, it comes down to at some point, whatever product we design, process we design, interface we design, um, is going to touch a human being. And that human being is going to be part of that experience and that system. So it has to start with, um, the, the humans and in some ways I think of it beyond humans it's like how do we think about earth centered design like how is the environment going to respond like how is the community going to respond and so um, it, it's it, your, your comment about going from hardware to software like, we still use hardware but I think especially I think the reason why there's a lot of data in our work and a lot of software in our work now is because um, I'll be, be super honest like a large part of this is because um, Google is primarily software engineering and, and software engineers and, and just this really sort of deep understanding of data. And so, you know, when I think about um, what is the unique contribution that a company like Google, and when I say Google, I mean like all of Alphabet, can make into the food system, um, we, we want to start with some of our strengths, right? Like we want to start with where, you know, we have like unique things to offer, um, and I mean that genuinely. I, I think, you know, there's a lot of things we could do. There's a lot of things we can learn. We're inherently a really curious population of folks. Um, you know, we can bring money to the table. We can help with policymaking. But, you know, our, our core strength at Google has always been software engineering. And so I've been leaning into that a lot more because that helps me bring um, with me a lot of individuals across the company who are excited and trying to find ways to contribute. So I must ask. Do you ever feel mm -hmm. in your trajectory, do you ever see yourself going into policy? Oh, goodness. Um, well, it's interesting. I'm I Canadian. won't hold you to anything, uh. here, but I, I've just seen this trajectory of people getting ultimately saying, you know, it, it comes down to the policy level. It's what we do with policy. And I'd be curious to take your get your take on that. No, that is fascinating. Um, maybe, maybe I maybe I could take policy and define it as very broad and I have seen now sort of the power of having a vision and bringing others along and and it's really about a narrative and it's really about the story and as human beings like I go back like 10,000 years ago when we were you know different human beings as a species like homo homo habilis homo sapiens like you know that journey right I think we've always been very captivated by story and that's how we have become a social species. Like that's how we figure out how to collaborate. And um, even with data and technology and all these things, the story still matters. And so when I think about policy and going into, you know, whether it's politics or whether going into the public sector, um, you know, I can, I can potentially see myself doing that in the case that it would help to, you know, move the needle on people's ability to participate in the food waste and food insecurity space. Even if we take three steps back to take you know, four steps forward, I do believe that over time, as messy as democracy is, like we become a more perfect union. That really is like the, the, the magic, I think, of, of a democracy. And I actually tie that back to what it's like to be ourselves, right? Like I've had many sort of 
three steps back to take four steps forward moments in my life and my career. And I think over time I've become a more perfect version of myself and it's a really chaotic, messy path sometimes. And, you know, I, I wish I could have told myself that when I was in undergrad, I, I, I thought the journey would be a little less windy and up and down and circuitous, but um, there's a beauty in that sort of weird circuitous windiness. Are you willing to share a story of taking steps back? <laughs> Gosh, you know, um, wow. Uh, I'm trying to think of a few things. So, you know, in my, so maybe I could start with lesson um, that I wish I could have taught myself when I was, you know, if I could zoom back 20 years and tell a 20 year old version of myself, it's, it's not the size of your team. It's the impact that your team can make. Um, and, you know, I've run really big teams before. I had a team of 120 when I started Google. Now I have a tiny team now that's less than five, right? For the most part. But we managed to get a lot done because we have friends everywhere um, and we have an aligned you know, set of values and we can align incentives with other parts of Google. And uh, it's actually a lot more fun now. Right. So in some ways, I thought it was a setback when I, I, I had that big team. And it was actually really interesting because I had a really, really big team. It was global and we were working on Google Glass together. And um, for many reasons, we realized that that was not, not tenable to keep growing it that way. And it was when one of my when my manager came to me and said, hey, Emily, I think you can accomplish the same. And it's just you and me. And I was like, there's no way. And it felt like such a big setback not to have that like safety net of like a big team to be like, hey, you know, we need to go here. You know, like, OK, this team, you're deployed over here and this team, you're deployed over here and this team. And it just felt like such a setback not to have resources. But um, Mo Gaudat was the one who taught me that, um, again, um, collaboration happens. What is it? at the speed of trust. And he had been at Google for a long time. So for at that point, when I met him in 2014, like 10 years, and again, he would pick up the phone and be like, Hey, um, you know, Emily and I are going to show up in Dubai. Can you guys like, can we have dinner together? And then inevitably three days later we come out and then there's like, he's got three volunteers helping him out. And I'm like, how did you do that? He's like, let's do this in three more cities. And then, you know, you'll see. Right. So, um, you know, that, that setback, it was just, it felt like a setback, but it was like this reset of like, I, I had certain things that I like had kind of made assumptions about in my mind of how to make things happen and get things done. And I was fortunate to be exposed to a new way of doing things and several more new ways of doing things that. So first of all, I want to compliment you throughout this interview. You've done an, an admirable job of calling out specific names of people who have helped you. And I just think that's, um, I really admire that. And I appreciate you recognizing all the people who have, who have supported you along the way. It's, it's lovely, a lovely attribute of a leader. Thank you for doing that. Um, and then the second question I want to ask is about um, the, the, the scary, the, the scary feeling that you may have felt when things totally shifted, right? When you went from this is what I know and think works to a new know and you know how something know uh, how something works, and I'm just curious how you navigated that that change of um, of understanding and any yeah. tips. Okay, I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm so glad you're talking about this, and um, it's funny because I, in some ways, I went into like science and tech and engineering and math because I was like, okay. 
answers are clear cut. There's always, there's never gray, you know, there's an answer, right? You know, and I was like, I love the sort of like rationality. I agree. Technical (laughs) field. Right, right. I was like, this is very attractive to me because, you know, I, I think I was incredibly, when I was growing up, I was very shy. You were shy? You know, I had a hard time. I was so oh shy. I was super shy. I was so shy. Like, I, I would, yeah, I, I'm, I'm still very introverted, but I'm less shy now. Um, and so I, I couldn't, I was like slightly scared of people. Like, no, seriously, I was like slightly scared of people, slightly scared of social situations. And I, I, I mean, I'm less so now, but like, um, you know, uh, navigating that in-between space is really just human life in many ways. Like I think we'll, and we'll constantly end up in those in-between spaces. And over the years I've become wiser about how to navigate those spaces with grace. And, um, you know, I, I think, you know, if you just like in terms of like tips or ways to navigate, you know, I've always sort of, gone back and said, you know what, you've been here before and you've always come out of it, right? So no matter how like terrible it feels right now or how frustrated you are, how hard this is, you'll come out of it, right? And it's okay. Like actually, you know, people, you might feel like people are going to judge you, but they're not. And, you know, you'll recover from the other end. You'll come out the other end a better person. And, um, you know, we have those moments of, Oh no, like this is bad, right? Like, you know, I'm panicking, but like if we believe in the goodness of the people around us and we believe that the resources are there to support us, generally things are going to be okay. I'm cognizant of our time, but I have two questions I must ask you, Please, which is what do you still want to learn and do? If I wasn't working in food right now, it would be on fiber and it would be on our textiles industry and system. Um, It is an incredibly um, complex and beautiful and also challenged system that produces the clothes that we wear. So, you know, um, the average sort of household throws away something like 600 pounds of food a year, but it's also like maybe 200 pounds of textiles every year, just responsible for so much just fiber products. And again, uh, tying back to sort of um, the why it's so challenged, like 70% of our clothing is synthetic. It's based on oil, right? And um, the area that I'm like personally curious about is how do we bring back um, like just natural fibers? And so, um, you know, I've been looking out 10 years and where I want to be, and this is not going to be necessarily like, you know, the, the answer that you might expect. I'm like, I want to be, if not running, um, but, but heavily participating in um, an alpaca ranch. <laughs> I would love to talk about so much more about this, so many questions, but I want to step back and ask you big picture. My question was going to be, what advice do you have for young people entering technology? But I'm not quite sure if that's the right question to be asking you. I think it's what advice do you have for young people living in this world? Because technology, I'm, what I'm hearing from you is yeah. just, it's, it's a tool, but really what we should be thinking about is systems and world's, earth systems. So what advice do you have for people in the world? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, think it's really important for first and foremost for you to never lose that curiosity. I think it's um, 
I, I, I definitely have friends and former colleagues and even current colleagues who have sort of lost that sort of glimmer in their eyes and their sort of ability to be curious because I think that's, that's unique for us as human beings. And there's optimism in the curiosity, right? Um, when we kind of get stuck in a rut, like I feel like we lose a little bit of like the magic of living. And so whatever it takes you to get into that curious space, sometimes for me, it's like, Literally, I still go to bookstores and I like randomly pick something off the like, it doesn't even matter if it's a you know, book I know nothing about, like, or a subject I know nothing about, you know, flip to a page in the middle and be like, oh, that's interesting. I just learned about how to tie knots, right? <laughs> I don't know. That's how I ended up in fiber arts, by the way. I started doing a lot of knitting and weaving and like, really? like mural size, you know, type things. Yeah. I just got, I just like, oh, you know, I just opened up a book and I was like, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to try to make that, right? And so... Um, just be curious, right? I think, you know, um, I, I think finding a, a sort of a social group to support you in being curious is also super important. And so however you go about that, doing that online, offline, um, when I've surrounded myself with people, I'm very cognizant about who I spend my time with and the kind of conversations I have with others because that feels me. And, you know, sometimes we get stuck like, oh, I have to spend time with these people. But like, there's people who give you energy and there's people who take away energy. And it's okay to be like, hey, I want to spend more time with people who give me energy for whatever reason. And less time with people who don't give me energy. Yeah, I would say curious. I would surround ourselves with people who are you know, to, who we don't have to be like-minded. I definitely have people where we are like polar opposites, but we respect each other enough to have the conversation. And then with respect to some of the biggest challenges we have in the next hundred years, um, maybe I'll leave you with one thing. We are not our titles and we are not our majors and we are not the labels that people give us. And I think sometimes we get stuck because we're like, you know what? I can't contribute to this really wicked problem space because I don't have that expertise. And that's just not true. I think we, we've come, become a culture where we identify so strongly with our discipline that we're not willing to give ourselves a chance to like transcend that. And I think a lot of the wicked problems we face in the world, whether it's hunger, whether it's climate issues, like require us to transcend our identities to some extent and go back into that curious space to find you know, new ways or alternative ways of working together. Because I think actually the solutions are there. The ways of solving. I read this incredible book, and if I'll leave you with one recommendation. Um, the book that sits with me um, still is a book called The Ministry of the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. He is a, for all intents and purposes, a science fiction writer. And this is a climate fiction story. And he takes the reader from today, 2020, all the way to 2070. And the ups and downs through that journey and... Um, he's prescient. The first chapter will give you chills because everything that he described in that chapter actually happened this year, uh, which is heartbreaking. But um, uh, then it, it it's it's not all gloom and doom. Like the multiple narratives in that story come back around, and like it it gave me such great hope that is possible. If if Kim Stanley Robinson could imagine that future, like we can make it happen. Like we can. And that's how everything we've done as humanity started was it was in our minds. And then somehow collectively we manifested the future that we want. I heard three things. I heard curiosity, community, and maybe four things, creativity and capacity. Like those feel like the fundamentals of 
the strengths that we need to take into this next century. Emily, you have brought me personally so much joy and energy and ideas. I'm certainly going to look up alpacas after this. Thank you so much for your time and your attention and all that you do for the the technology and the larger larger society. It feels like we're in a different space because you're you're at the helm. Thank you very much. 